Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. We're here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. And we have a website at www.adogs.info and we're up to press release 666, which is a letter from City School for City Kids during the week This came across our email, so we thought we'd better inform you about this. And Denise Fung Henderson, who is uh, the leader of this group, or certainly the media secretary for this group, uh, has this to say in her letter. Right now, there are kids in the inner city learning in hallways and stairwells and students being asked to bring in wooden boards to school to work on because there aren't enough desks. We've been calling on the government for a solution and what did we get? One new portable classroom, not good enough. The principals are doing the best as they can. The teachers are overstretched. So the parents need to do something. So Denise Fung Henderson is writing to us and to you to invite you to a Docklands Community Forum on Wednesday the 31st of August from 6 to 8pm at the Docklands Library. At this meeting, Peter Graham, the Acting Director from the Resources Strategy Division, Department of Education and Training, will be attending and discussing education provision for Docklands and the current and future CBD students. The forum will be held on the third level of the Docklands Library and is jointly convened by the Melbourne City Council and Places Victoria. I'll just stop there to digress. The government are also setting up a new authority for school school building in Victoria and there are a number of uh, places, uh, or, or what would you call it, CEOs, positions of power or responsibility that have been advertised on the website. And I can only assume that the interviewees are being interviewed at the moment because the uh, positions have been closed for application. But it's going to be very interesting, listeners, to find out who is put upon this authority and how big a representation the private school interest has. Because, believe it or not, Mr Andrews is giving 
millions and millions and millions for new Catholic schools, new private schools and new libraries and other upgrades in private schools which are already very, very well resourced, while our public schools are either non-existent or under-resourced. So I, I think that it's very interesting that they're setting up this authority and these uh, city schools for city kids are very excited that there is going to be such an authority that they can relate to and that their views will be taken into account by this authority. But beware, beware of these kinds of setups bearing gifts because who are the gifts really for? The inner city, though, Denise Fung Henderson tells us, has grown exponentially. But crucial social infrastructure such as, such as primary and secondary schools have not been prioritised. Well, they were closed. Uh, Kennett closed them. We had them and they were closed. This means that families are forced to live elsewhere or they are forced to access the closest schools they can get into, often having to travel over an hour each day. So she wants those people who are concerned, particularly in the inner city, to join them to demand answers as well as call for a plan to ease overcrowding in local schools because supply has outstripped demand. Because if we don't demand action now, the problem is only going to get worse. Well, it is already worse because Haileybury has spent $52 million a substantial amount of it, taxpayers' money, on buying the NAB building, the multi-storey building in King Street, and they have already opened uh, at the lower levels and uh, there's a question of who is sending their children there. Well, who can afford to send their children there? One person I know who does send their child there is the um, uh, vicar, of the old St James Cathedral, but there are others as well. So uh, the dogs are quite specific on this. They don't mind Harley Berry being there, but they don't see why why we should be spending taxpayers' money on their facilities or on the per capita grants which they get. A child who goes to Harley Berry will get 25% of whatever goes to a public school child in the area, as well as, of course, the substantial fees that the parents have to pay. So that's all very interesting, isn't it? I'd like to talk about what is going on in America. We've heard just so much about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And given that Australia is either following America or England, we don't seem to have too many good ideas of our own uh, in education. I thought that you might like to hear about it. And there will be a press release which outlines their policies. First of all, Donald Trump. Uh, there is a very interesting Fox News Sunday 2015 coverage of the 2016 presidential hopefuls that was put out on October the 18th, 2015, as well as other um, sources. Uh, 
that have been looking at what Trump has been saying about education. Uh, he has an interesting idea about no federal government profit from student loans because apparently in America, the payback of the student loans, which um, involves people paying back what they spent or what the government spent on them in their uh, college years or university years, we would call it, um, they make a profit. I thought they were making a loss, but according to Trump, they're making a profit. But you, you never quite know when you're dealing with Trump what is fact and what is fiction. Anyway, he claims that the big problem in this case in the payment of student loans is the federal government because he says there's no reason the federal government should profit from student loans. It only makes an already difficult problem worse. Um, according to him, the student loan program turned a $41.3 billion profit in 2013. I, I don't know where these facts come from because my understanding was that they were making a loss, um, that in fact they were in trouble. He says, however, that schools should compete. Uh, Trump is a born-again free trader, accepting uh, for free trade in the Pacific area. But in education, he's a free trader. Let schools compete. Charters, vouchers and magnets. Uh, so he's really a private school man. Competition, he says, is why I'm very much in favour of school choice. Let schools compete for kids. This is Trump. I guarantee that if you're for, you force schools to get better or close because parents didn't want to enrol their kids there, they would get better. Well, could you please tell me how a school that's closed can get better? Those schools that weren't good enough to attract students would close, and that's a good thing. Oh, so that's um, the world according to Trump. Uh, he says that for two decades he'd been urging politicians to open the schoolhouse doors and let's pe let parents decide which schools were best for their children. Uh, and he's very much against, of course, professional educators. He also wants to cut the Federal Department of Education and the Common Core curriculum. Uh, we're going to be cutting tremendous amounts of money, he says, and waste and fraud and abuse. But no, I'm not cutting services. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, this is again the world, for, for, according to Trump. He's cutting spending, but not services. But I may cut the Department of Education because he says that Common Core is a very bad thing. He thinks it should all be local education. He says that. Uh, the trouble is they spend more per student than any other nation. I'm not sure that this is a, a factually correct either. But he says that only local people should control education. American education in an international context worries him because they're 26th in the world and 25 countries are better at education than the United States. And some of them are like third world countries. So third world countries are better than America. What does that tell you? He says it tells him that we're, they're becoming a third world country. He's very much against Common Core. Why should every child in America have a curriculum that is the same? He says it's a disaster. 
um, and he doesn't like Bush because Bush was in favour of this. So he wants to cut the Federal Department of Education way, way down. Uh, he founded Trump University. I think a lot of you may know about this. In 2005, it was an online school and it was supposed to be teaching the art of deal-making, but it was a university that didn't actually offer degrees. So the New York Department of Education complained and he changed the name to Trump Entrepreneur Initiative in 2010. <laughs> I have a feeling that you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that it went bust. Uh, like, in fact, a lot of things that, that Trump actually has done. But uh, that gives you an idea about what he thinks of tertiary education and what it should be about. He keeps on opposing this common core because he's – but he's very – now, this, this really sounds like our Mr Howard. Americans don't know their roots, so you should study your ancestry. Uh, he found that he enjoyed learning about Scotland and – says it has broadened his horizons. Well, I'm terribly sorry, but I don't think he studied the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, he doesn't quite sound like an enlightened Scotsman. Terribly sorry about that. Uh, comprehensive education, he says, instead of limiting subjects. He says that comprehensive education dissolves the line be lines between knowing too much and knowing too little on a variety of subjects. Subjects that are necessary for success. Well, I'm not sure what he thinks success is and I'm not sure what is necessary for success, but there you are. Uh, he interviewed a young man who was very well versed in his field of expertise and almost uneducated in every other subject. It was like he had tunnel vision, said Trump. Well, the, the pot perhaps should not call the kettle black. But he wants people to be taught citizenship and he doesn't like dumbing down. He says, public education was never meant to only teach the three R's, history and science. It was also meant to teach citizenship. Talks about basics, but he doesn't seem to understand the concept of learning to uh, learning critical thinking or learning to think for yourself as a citizen. He wants to end creative spelling, estimating and empowerment. Um, he wants, however, and this is the most revealing thing, to bring on the competition and tear down the union walls. He says this, our public schools have grown up in a competition-free zone surrounded by a very high union wall. Why aren't we shocked at the results? So he's involved in teacher bashing. And then he says, with more than 85% of their soft money donations going to Democrats, teachers' unions know they can count on the politician they back to take a strong stand against school choice. So he's pro-school choice and he's very pro-charters, uh, charter schools in the United States, which are actually the way the United States is uh, privatising public education. He's also in favour of vouchers so that kids can quote 
go to the school of their choice. Well, actually, it's the school of their parents' choice. And uh, some of them, he is prepared to think that perhaps some of them might choose a public school because that is competition. So he's competition man. Let's have a look at Hillary Clinton. Uh, People are saying these days that Donald Trump is not going to become president, but they said that he wasn't going to become the Republican Republican, um, candidate either. So uh, given that the people who vote for Trump are those who like authoritarian figureheads, and there are plenty of those not only in Australia but also in America... Uh, one wonders what's going to happen in November. And I believe that we should be informed and we should be ready. So where does Clinton stand on education? The Education Writers uh, Association have produced a very interesting paper which compares the two. Uh, They say that uh, Trump only mentioned it once in passing in his nomination speech. Uh, and he has said much less about education than Hillary Clinton. He has a lot of buzzwords. But the Republican Party's platform itself is more detailed. Uh, it includes a direct rebuke of a recent White House directive urging states to uphold the civil rights of transgender students, for example. And Republicans have said that they salute the several states which have filed suits against it. However, Hillary Clinton is very interesting because she has a long history of interest in education and she was in trouble from Bernie Sanders because of his very strong stand on educational matters. And the really interesting thing is that uh, her running mate has an even stronger history in dealing with education. Now, during her acceptance speech, Clinton reaffirmed her support for debt-free college. And that, of course, comes from Sanders. Bernie Sanders started that policy. A debt-free college. So let's hope that... America does have debt-free colleges because America, sorry, Australia might follow suit and we might have debt-free universities for our students. They might come out of our universities without the debt that they're currently carrying. But there's plenty of scepticism in America as to whether removing the financial burden will actually lead to more students actually earning degrees. So uh, Claudio Sanche has talked about college finance expertise and whether the student loan debt crisis is a fact or fiction. But it was an important pivot for Clinton on the higher education policy and it was widely viewed as an olive branch extended to Senator Bernie Sanders who campaigned very heavily on this issue issue, and counted many younger voters among his fiercest supporters in the White House bid. She had previously called Sanders' proposals too expensive to be viable. 
but she changed her tune after the fright she got from Bernie Sanders. But the Clinton campaign has been rather short on policy detail when it comes to K-12 education. And that is perhaps because of the political tensions within the Democratic Party on key issues such as accountability and charter schools. However, during her speech, the former Secretary of State, the First Lady and Senator, hearkened back to her own advocacy in this arena before she ever held any office. And for the first time, the Democratic Party has made the school-to-prison pipeline a platform issue. This is what she had to say. I went to work for the Children's Defence Fund going door-to-door in New Bedford, Massachusetts, on behalf of children with disabilities who were denied the chance to go to school, she said. And then it became clear to me that simply caring's not enough. To drive real progress, you have to change both heart and laws. And it's worth noting that for the first time, the Democratic Party has made this school-to-prison pipeline a platform issue. So that is a plus for Ms Clinton, because I think that um, Trump is only good at knocking anybody who is in prison and perhaps putting people into prison if he's talking to the gun lobby about potential assassinations of his, of his um, uh, well, of Clinton, actually. <laughs> it's not just the presidential candidates that are under scrutiny, however, for their education policy leanings. Vice presidents and their spouses are being looked at. And the interesting thing for the Democrats is that the second lady is an English professor, Jill Biden, and she has been a vocal advocate of the nation's community colleges. Anne Holton, who's the wife of this year's Democratic nominee for Vice President, Senator Tim Kaine, was Virginia's Secretary of Education, and she's just stepped down. And as Emma Brown wrote for the Washington Post, Holton's a lifelong child welfare advocate and a strong influence on her husband. She also wrote an op-ed sharply criticising the over-testing of students, something that's becoming a rallying cry for parents, educators and policymakers on both sides of the aisle. It's not a year to make assumptions about a person's view on education based on their political affiliation, however. Alison Klein from Education Week has illustrated that fact with a clever quiz for readers. And the teachers, of course, are very interested in what is going on. But Gail Manning, for example, who's an Ohio state senator and 40-year teacher, said, we need to realise that kids are coming from broken homes, low-income families. They're not going to do as well on the test as someone else. And she is not a Democrat. She is a Republican. So uh, it's... um, It's anyone's guess what is actually going to happen in America. But uh, I think that here at The Dogs, we need to keep a watching brief because the charter school movement, which is for uh, corporations taking control of education and making money out of of it, 
And the voucher system, which is for the religious groups getting control of education and making money out of it, those policies are being held by Trump, who is, whether you like it or not, whether the Americans like it or not, the Republican candidate uh, for the presidency in the November election. So it's all very, very interesting. And we will continue to keep you informed. And if you want to find out more about this, uh, particularly about what Clinton is about and what she has to say on K-12 education, we will put that up on our website. But that's enough of me from now. We'll have a little bit of music, and this is Robert's music this time. And after you hear Robert's music, you will hear Robert's voice. I left the house, left the room with the foxy on my back And my supplies in a magic pack And I followed the sound of music Not up a hill, but down to an old wharf shack Inside I heard the trumpets call A salute to the champions on the wall And in the jazz of squalls And in fashion balls she danced Oh, and the night she looks so fine to me Fishies to my hook. Fishies to my hook.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program, our dearest and loyalist listeners who are in constant correspondence with us, actually. It's wonderful to know we have such support out there because 3CR, 855 and the AM Dial podcast is one of the very few places you're going to hear the sort of stuff that we're talking about. But just as a little break there before, we had the Cat Empire playing in 2009 at Wyoming Adelaide, a little song called Fishies. Yeah, I liked it. It's all good fun. Um, but back to the serious stuff now. Jean's been very kind in sharing all her detailed research on what's going on in the United States when it comes to education policy, which, as she quite rightly points out, not something that people are talking about because they're too busy slinging mud at each other at the moment, but it's actually a very important thing for them and indeed for us because whatever happens over there is going to happen over here pretty soon. Now, there's been some interesting things going on around the world, and I'm going to skip now, before we get to Australia, I'm going to skip now to what's going on in the United Kingdom. Now, we've been reporting on what's on their restructuring of the technical and further education sector over there. But um, Theresa May, the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, very interestingly um, has decided that grammar schools, grammar schools are going to be the saviour of education into the future. And it's a very interesting article written by Frances Ryan, who is in fact a product of the grammar school system, and she has some interesting things to say about it, and I think our listeners would be interested in what she had to say. Again, sometimes we talk about the United Kingdom because what happens there tends to happen here, sort of half a decade later. But Frances, uh, Frances Ryan says, well... Theresa May is seeking to entrench inequality while pretending to help the poor. And Francis says, and so it all begins. Theresa May is, we learned just recently, ready to scrap the near 20-year ban on grammar schools, launching a, I quote, new generation of selective education. Creating more grammars will aid what she calls social mobility, a government source says. And I quote from Theresa May, she says, if you're, really, if, you, if you're a really bright kid, you should have the opportunity to excel as far as your talents can take you. And implied in that, of course, is that to have your talents taken and, and, and for you to excel, of course, you have to go to a private school. Mm. Now, anyone, says Francis, with even a cursory knowledge of education or inequality in the United Kingdom will know that each word of what she has said is a myth and a contradiction. The government is either pretending to instill more educational reform with no understanding of the evidence, or the government is intentionally lying. And Francis is not quite sure which one is worse. Now, Francis says, I am a product of the grammar school system. I am working class. My parents hadn't gone to university. And she says, growing up in an area with few job chances, but notably one of the country's rare remaining selective state schools, um, she went on and passed her 11 plus. And then she went to the Russell Group University and got a PhD. And now, she says, I'm writing an article for The Guardian. Now, if that's not social mobility in action, a fast move into the middle class, she says, I don't know what is. But people like me, she says, lucky anomalies, are used by supporters of grammar schools to distort reality as human exhibits for the claim that keeping and now expanding selective education is the definition of fairness and equal opportunity. Let's be clear, she says. Grammar schools, far from a benefit to smart working-class kids, are simply another way for middle classes to entrench their advantage. 
More than four times as many grammar school pupils now come from private preparatory schools than the number entitled to free school meals. That is to say, rich kids are getting the scholarships and not the poor ones. The Institute of Fiscal Studies found that more deprived children are significantly less likely to go to a grammar school than the most advantaged, even when they achieve equally good results when they're 11. Now, while parents in poverty struggle to give their children a decent breakfast to help their brains develop, the well-off hire private tutors as another leg up to pass grammar school entrance exams. Even if a few working-class families like hers buck the trend, the success of working-class families is built off the back of the ones left behind. And as Francis has written before, no matter how many good comprehensives are, or how, how good many of the comprehensives are, selective schooling, by its very definition, creams off what would have made them better. Not only to the advantage for children of being surrounded by classmates with high abilities, but the teaching staff are more likely to be attracted and retained by schools with them, and the invaluable power of educated, wealthy parents. Now, the damage is long-term harm. In communities where selective education already exists, the salary differences between the highest and the lowest earners is consistently bigger than in areas with a comprehensive system. The facts could not be clearer. Grammar schools actually widen the gap between rich and poor. But the truth is, facts mean very little here. Rather, the right's adoration of grammar schools embodies the worst of its class prejudice. Whether we succeed, the grades that we get, that is poor students in grammar schools, at school, the jobs that we do, the salaries we earn, is down to how smart we are and how hard we try, and nothing more, say the Conservatives. There are a few individuals the ultimate diamonds in the rough, who deserve, in their view, to be saved. The rest obviously bring about their own disadvantage. Robert, they only deserve to be saved if, if they become proper servants of the establishment. Uh, anybody who goes to a selective school, and I was one of them, has to make a decision at some time in their life. Either they become a servant for the wealthy or they become a servant of the uh, kinds of families that they've actually come from, or the poor in our community, or the disadvantaged. Um, I think that you can see that the difference between some of the uh, alumni, alumni, if you like, of the school that I went to. Barwick, for example, went to Fort Street in Sydney, which was a highly selective high school. Barwick became a servant of the wealthy, and was responsible in the end for uh, giving the legal advice that enabled them to sack Whitlam. And uh, when, in fact, Whitlam was uh, doing something that the CIA was not happy about. Uh, that, that was, that's just plain history. But there was another person who went to a selective high school, and that was Lionel Murphy, and he went to Sydney Boys High School. And Lionel Murphy, at a crucial stage in his life, after his brother had died... Uh, his brother had been a social worker who had acquired, um, uh, he'd acquired uh, tuberculosis and died. And this upset uh, Lionel greatly and he took his brother's name and he uh, then decided that he would become a servant of the poor. He paid a very heavy price but he did get to one of the highest spots in the land and he survived there for some years to do a great deal of good. 
So that is the decision that a person who was given this wonderful opportunity of a selective education in a class-structured society has to make. Um, I worked that out and I've seen other people thinking about how they could work it out. Michael Kirby had to make the same decision. Uh, but um, it is a class-based system. Here in Australia, back in 1912, when they actually opened these schools so that the children could get a secondary education, those who were able to, Board, who was the Director of Education of New South Wales, said that this was proper democracy. It is not proper democracy. A comprehensive high school system, which was introduced by the Wyndham Report in 1961 in New South Wales, is a democratic system. But as soon as they introduced it, it had only been going for three years. What did they do? They gave state aid to selective schools who didn't only select on the basis of academic ability but selected on extraordinary things like religion and the ability of parents to pay. So that's what happened to the democratic education system here in Australia, the comprehensive system which was open to every child, uh, the secondary system which was open to absolutely every child regardless of their background, and we undermined it within three years of its being introduced. And the same thing is now being done in England. It is actually a tragedy, and unfortunately, unfortunately, academics and others do their sociology and make their careers talking forever about disadvantaged children and how we're still left with inequality, and they never confront the real real issues. They're never prepared to take on the big religious corporations and the big corporations, privatisation corporations that actually want to divide our children and or undermine our democracy. Well, there you are. There's my my soapbox. I've uh, <laughs> I've noted this over the last 50 years of my life. That's right. It's pretty obvious, Jean, what decision you made in terms of how you were going to use your education yeah. for, 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 for the rest of Australia. Thank you very much for your contribution. And, and, and I've been very blessed because I did so. I think that I have met some absolutely marvellous people along my life's journey. Um, it was. It is. By I assure you, it is the best decision to make. And there are many, many wonderful teachers in our public schools that are making these decisions daily. Absolutely. No, thank you very much for your contributions there, Jean. Now, to return to this article, it's actually rather interesting. Uh, Francis Ryan, I think, most definitely agrees with just about everything you've said in an English context rather than an Australian one, because she says the debate over selective education is not simply about grammar schools, but a wider, warped attitude about poverty, education and status in the United Kingdom. It's the ideology of conservatism in a nutshell the fetishization of personal responsibility and the convenient amnesia towards structural inequality. That the alumni of Eton and Oxbridge run the country and the working class clean the toilets is simply, from their point of view, a coincidence. <laughs> or worse, it is exactly, quite fairly, how things should be. In the system... 
Grammar schools are sold as a way for the poorest to escape where inequality puts them. Yet you almost have to respect the gall of Theresa May and her grammar school supporters. Not only have they found another way to kick the life chances of the working-class children, but they are doing it under the guise of helping them. I think interesting words, and, and quite well written, and I think not just a great deal of truth, but a great deal of resonance here in Australia. Now, um, as Jean has often been talking, and she often does, and is quite right, to give context to exactly what's happened in Australia, what's happening in Australia, and how that compares to other places in the world, I thought I'd share with you an interesting, um, an interesting series of ideas which came from a paper written by um, Bernie Shepherd and Chris Chris Bonner called An Uneven Playing Field, The State of Australia's Schools. Now, this came out earlier in 2016, but very deep in this this report, in fact, as part of the appendices, they gave a little potted history, not just of Australian education system and where it's come from in the last 50 years or so, but how it compares to other countries. Now, they said, and this is a very interesting comment, uh, but, um, uh, Chris, Chris, Chris Bonner says, that in the mid-1950s, and Jean, I think you can, I'd, I'd be interested in your comments on this, the visiting American educator, Freeman Butts, mm. predicted that non-government schools would increase claims for state aid and thus weaken government schools, strengthening class, religious and social distinctions in Australian society. That's right. He was an American and he noted that we had a centralised systems here and they were more equal than the local systems in the United States. Trump is saying that America should stay local and there should be no centralisation. But uh, centralisation is efficient and effective and it also costs less. Unfortunately, um, in Australia at the moment, we don't need leaders, we need administrators. They have undermined our centralised bureaucracies to the point that we can't even run a census. <laughs> the old Roman emperors would be horrified. Indeed. Um, well, in 1087, remember the Doomsday Book? Yes. <laughs> that was a more effective census than the one we've done in 2016. Oh, how technology has moved us forward. Oh, well, that's, I mean, that's just all. Oh, well, no, that is uh, the result of uh, romancing, the sheer romance of privatisation. And we'll be coming to that later in the show, actually, because there's been some interesting stuff written about privatisation, both in Australia as a whole and also to do with the education system. But back to Freeman Butts in 1950. Mm. Now, I remember. Mm, that's right. Um, now, Australia was not the only country faced with pressure to fund private schools at this time. It is useful to consider what some other countries did when faced with similar pressures to Australia. Now, rather than just hand over public funds, most countries demanded something in return. The common pattern has been for church schools to become part of the state system of education, leaving a completely private school sector, typically around 5% of the total enrolments. Now, after protracted negotiations, the New Zealand Catholic schools became part of the state system in 1975. In doing so, in New Zealand, Catholic schools were required to assume the same obligations and accountabilities of state schools, and even more significant, they were no longer permitted to charge fees. Church schools in England and Wales also faced financial difficulties and were generally integrated into expanded state system in 1944. Mm. Most commonly, the school systems which operated where Canada became a nation were funded as part of a public system in each province. 
In the Netherlands, church schools have almost always been part of the state provision, serving the need to maintain a balance of faiths and community groups. Now, in these other countries, there was a much greater awareness of the implications of funding private schools which were operating alongside state-provided schools. There were frequent debates, for example in New Zealand, and active consideration of equity issues and the relationship between schools. But they're still dividing children on the basis of religion. It's still a divided society, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm talking about history. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm talking yeah. about different approaches, contrary to the Australian one. Yeah. Now, regulations were established in these other countries to ensure that fully funded former private schools didn't have advantages denied to public schools. None of this suggests that integration was or is a solution for Australia, simply that issues of equity and sustainability for the long term were on the agenda almost everywhere else except Australia. Now, that's not true. We've talked about needs policies interminably. It's just that they haven't worked because they became greeds policies. Well, in contrast, all that happened in Australia at the same time were some attempts to shut the stable door after the horse had bolted. As Connors and McMorrow relate, a wake-up call came from the Carmel Report in 1973, where it was advised that, and I quote, a point beyond which it is not possible to consider policies relating to the private sector without taking into account their possible effects on the public sector whose strength and representativeness should not be diluted. Now, there were, were attempts to restrict or moderate the funding of non-government schools, especially those that were well endowed. Now, the Whitlam government attempted, without success, to exclude giving money to high-fee schools. The Hawke Government's Education Resources Index, the old ERI, which included all sources of private income in the assessment of non-government school subsidy levels, was a measure of the actual resources available to students in their schools. But this measure was abolished by, you guessed it, John Howard, in favour of a measure based on parents' socioeconomic status as a surrogate for their capacity to pay fees. There's a little bit left out there. Yes, there uh, is. Karma was replaced by Peter Tannock. In 1978, the uh, Schools Commission report uh, really, really uh, showed a major preference, a big turning point where the Catholic schools got more than the state schools. Uh, the Dogs wrote a, um, a critique of this in, at the time. The New South Wales Secretary did some tremendous research on it. But Peter Tannock is, I believe... Um, is he the Vice-Chancellor of Notre Dame? I know that he's received a papal knighthood for his work uh, for Catholic education in Australia, and he certainly did a wonderful job for that system while he was the head of the Schools Commission. The Schools Commission um, was abolished once there were dissenting reports from the uh, state school representatives, Van Davey and I think Brown. So uh, there's a lot in between there that they've left out. The Schools Commission was there to dumb down any uh, opposition to state aid and it was, on the whole, successful. And I think Joan Kerner paid a very real part in all of that. Well, yes, indeed. I mean, it kind of goes on to complete, and I, I think you, you agree with this last bit, as part of this whole process, almost no attention was ever given to levelling the playing field in which schools operate. Public schools were considered to be just another sector that had to compete 
forgotten were the reasons why public schools were established in the first place and their obligation and their obligation alone to be available to everyone, everywhere and under every circumstance. It was a perfect script to create a tiered education system. And in fact, if you ask me, um, it's how you build a class system. If you want to create a class system where one did not naturally um, evolve before, then that's exactly how you do it. We'll be returning um, after a little bit of lovely music here, again from the Woe Adelaide Festival in 2009, to talk about that which Jean quite rightly mentioned before, which is privatisation. program, ladies and gentlemen. That was Midi uh, Mikidache and a lovely song called Migogogori and that was from, again, the Womadelay Festival in 2009 and that recording was by local studios licensed to them. Wonderful stuff just to keep us going because Jim was talking about privatisation. I'd just like to share with you a very interesting article by John Quiglin who is in fact Professor of School of Economics at the University of Queensland. Um, I don't usually repeat what professors of economics say but this is rather interesting he said people have actually just lost faith in privatization and it's easy to see why the presumption is that government pr- the presumption is that government 
um, privatising things is always desirable. But many failures have led to the people, he calls them consumers, I call them citizens, um, to think differently. From the viewpoint of ordinary Australians, he says, privatisation is a policy that has consistently failed but is remorselessly pushed by the political elite. There's little surprise that voters are turning to populism in response. Privatisation is a term that covers a multitude of policies. These range from outright sale of government businesses and enterprises like Medibank Private to the outsourcing of services like IT support for government agencies, indeed like uh, giving a couple of you know, tens of millions of dollars to IBM to run a census that fails. <laughs> In a mixed economy like Australia, he says, the boundaries of the public and the private sectors are consistently shifting. The desirability or otherwise of privatisation needs to be assessed on a case-by-case basis. However, the rhetoric that has dominated Australia's public policy for the last 25 years, Labor Labor and Liberal, or Liberal, or whatever you want to call them, embodies the presumption that privatisation is always and everywhere desirable. The many failures of privatisation have led most ordinary Australians to actually draw the complete opposite conclusion. It's even something that Chairman of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the ACCC, Rod Sims, is now himself questioning. Sims' criticism of infrastructure privatisation in Australia is an old one. That is, the absence of competition, replacing a public monopoly with a private monopoly, may make society worse off. For example, as Sims observes, Port Botany and Port Kembla in New South Wales were privatised together, while the Port of Melbourne in Victoria was privatised with conditions restricting competition from other ports. The result, unsurprisingly, was big increases in charges. Other examples of privatisation gone wrong is the public funding of the for-profit vocational education sector. This bipartisan policy began with the Brumby and Bailiou governments in Victoria and the Howard government federally. The key idea was to open the state-funded TAFE system to competition from private providers. At a national level, the HECS system was extended to for-profit providers through the fee-help system. The effect was to give strong incentives to enrol as many students as possible while keeping the costs of education to a minimum. Now, of course, bogus courses proliferated and aggressive marketeers enrolled students who had little or no chance of completing their courses. The comprehensive failure of vocational education privatisation is now universally recognised. The federal ministers responsible for the scheme, Luke Hartsucker and Simon Birmingham, have been vociferous in their denunciation of Labor's failure to respond to problems in the system, but their reforms have been equally ineffectual. Yet despite all of this, the push for privatisation keeps going. The Baird government is moving ahead with TAFE's privatisation. Similar moves are happening in other states. The failure of for-profit education is not confined to Australia. New South Wales is about to sell its uh, actual electrical grid to China. (laughs) Extraordinary. They won't need to hack it. They can just take it. The failure of for-profit education is actually not confined to Australia because in the US already it's been a disaster. As in Australia, primary business models have been exposed exploitations of public funding systems Mm -hmm. for disadvantaged students. The US Government Accounting Office found widespread evidence of fraud and deceptive marketing. As in Australia, attempts have been made to tighten the rules and numerous for-profit firms have just gone bankrupt. But there's no evidence that the problems have actually been resolved. 
Now, many of the same problems apply to other human services, such as hospitals, and nearly every Australian state has experienced failed privatisation of public-private partnerships in the area of health. It's time to move beyond the failed policy of privatisation. In particular, we should recognise health and education as social investments that cannot be handed over to for-profit providers. Fascinating stuff. The worm is turning, Jean. Um, we're saying things that now everyone else is agreeing with. We're almost in danger of becoming mainstream. And if you want to check up on that claim, please do on our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, when we'll be equally angry but never despairing, um, until next week, it, this, that's it for the Dogs Program, the Defenders of Government Schools. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City, Joe says I I'm standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I'm dead Says Joe, but I'm dead The copper bosses killed you, Joe They shot you, Joe, says I Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, I didn't die, says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on. Organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. It's there you find. Says he.